All right. Good morning, Sovereign Grace. We're going to take a little time and uh, enjoy God's Word together and get into it. And so this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So if you guys want to take a Bible and read along with me. I'm going to begin in verse uh, 25, and we're going to read through verse 42. Beginning in verse 25, it reads, And when they found him, meaning Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not... Moses, who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So, let's start here. Uh, I always, when I start a sermon, I want to make sure we're on uh, theologically kind of a a solid ground and even ground, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, One of my things as the executive director of AIM for India that I've had the opportunity to do uh, over the last 10 years, is I get to travel, and I get to be with churches like yourself, and I get to go to a lot of different churches and uh, see a lot of different people, and for me, it's exciting. I always love the, the opportunity to get to meet with God's people. And, and I'll say this, I'm both excited and sometimes disturbed by the state of the church, the way that I see it. There are churches that are doing well, and they end up making disciples, and then there are some churches that are not doing well. They flounder. Their floundering is for a number of reasons, but a lot of those reasons are theological reasons. Is that they don't trust God's word enough to operate it, to do it, to obey it. Does anyone know what topic Jesus addressed more than any other in the Gospels? The kingdom of God. 
It's not even close. I mean, he talked about the kingdom constantly. He said things like the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6. Seek first what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Then my favorite, Matthew thirteen forty four, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, in his joy, He goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. See, the Bible is really one concise story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And then it makes this claim that in this story that we're all caught up in it. And God has decided to make us part of this story. And one of the primary ways to tell that story, the story of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is the eternal sovereign rule of God. And the kingdom of God is a world that this world is waiting for. It's a world of justice and life and peace and salvation. Part of what Jesus accomplished is he came to bring that kingdom to this world, and that's why he prays in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this world, it's not that. This world is not that world. The present world that we live in is broken and fractured because of sin. And there's a world coming that is the cure to this world. And that world will be ushered in ultimately when Jesus returns for a second time. The Bible would also teach that through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that a small part, a bit of that future, if you will, that kingdom world has already begun. It's already, but it's not yet fully realized. Here's what I grew up believing. What I would have called heaven is something that would have only been future. And it's what happens after someone dies when they know Jesus. But the Bible calls the kingdom as something that is both present and future. Two biblical examples of this is in Matthew 4. It says that Jesus preaches that the kingdom of God is where? It's at hand. It's here. It's at hand. John 11 uh, tells the story of the death of Lazarus. And Jesus has a conversation with Mary Brown, her brother, Lazarus' death. And Mary says, I know that I will see my brother at the resurrection, on the last day in the resurrection. Jesus' response to that is, I am the resurrection and the life. In, in, in other words, part of what you're waiting for is standing right in front of you. It is already here. So growing up, what I believed, it really wasn't wrong. It was just simply incomplete. It would have gone something like this. Sin is a bad thing. Jesus forgives and saves. Heaven is great. And you'll get to go there someday when you die. And you obey Jesus in this life because that's how you show him how much you love him. And these things don't come alive until they're rooted in an understanding of the kingdom, its eternal reality, and a deep love for King Jesus. One of the questions that was posed to me, and this has been something that's kind of stuck with me uh, for some time now, and this question was asked this way. It says, what will you do today to give the present a picture of the future? Said another way, how will the kingdom that both is and is to come be displayed in your life? And I think those are relevant questions for us today as we take a look at Scripture. And how are we going to display the reality of who Jesus is and the reality of what he's promised and the reality of all that means? But I I think here's where most people go wrong. For the believer, 
This is where they go wrong. This is where they deviate. It is a belief that Jesus lived, that he suffered, and that he died somehow to make my life safe and comfortable. To make things easier on me. For the unbeliever, for the person who doesn't know Jesus, they go wrong for a number of reasons, and mainly because they have a nature that is bent towards sin. But it's really living in the default mode of pride and idolatry. They think they're all that, and so they rely upon themselves to do what is necessary. I think if we're not careful, we will allow ourselves to go that same direction. And here's the reason we'll go that same direction. It's because uh, as believers, we still struggle with a nature that is sinful. We still struggle with our flesh. And so we're, we're bent towards that direction if we're not careful. So I think those are things that we have to keep in mind. Those are things that we have to watch out for. So with all of that said, let's take a look at our text in John chapter 6. I think it says four things to us today. And... Um, We'll take a look at these things one at a time. I want to set the context for you, the background of the text. And so the first part of John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. So uh, when the Bible says that 5,000 were fed, what it means is those were 5,000 men. And so it's not counting the women. It's not counting the children. So you're looking at, we don't know how many were there. But approximately, you're looking at about probably 20,000 or more. And so this is an obvious miracle. He takes a little bit of food, he multiplies it to be able to feed that many people, and there were leftovers. So as a Jewish crowd that's sitting there listening to this guy, and, and they're thinking, is this guy, they're asking themselves a question as they listen to him teach, is this the one, is this the guy that we've been waiting on? Is this really where this is going? And then all of a sudden, food shows up. And it's just like, hey, any church fellowship, and we're about to enjoy that and get into that a little bit ourselves, but food makes a lot of things better, doesn't it? And when you live in a society and a culture where you're probably constantly hungry and looking for food, and you've got a guy who can just provide you with food, why wouldn't you want that? The Bible says that they thought about taking him by force and making him their king so he could be their meal ticket every day. And when Jesus perceived that, he left. He got out of there. And so he flees. And he walks away. And then the disciples decide, hey, they look up, Jesus isn't around. I guess we need to go to the other side. We know that he's traveling across there. So they get in a boat, storm props up, and this is the account of where Jesus walks on the water. And when they see him, they were afraid. He says, he calls out to them. He says, hey, don't be afraid. It's me. Climbs into the boat. And the Bible says immediately they were on the other side. Another miracle. Walking on the water gets them to the other side immediately. So it comes about the next day, and the crowd is still on the opposite side of the sea. Well, guess what they're thinking about? Breakfast. Hey, where's that guy that, you know, snapped his fingers and we had all this food and we got some leftovers here, but I don't know if we can make it all go around again, so who knows? And they think, you know what, we need to find that guy. We don't need to let him get away. And so they begin to look, and some of the boats are missing. They're like, aha, he went to the other side of the sea. So they take off to the other side of the sea going and looking for him. And so our text begins when they catch up to him on the other side of the sea. Verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Hey, man, why did you leave us? Why did you get away? Why are you running around so fast? Hey, let's not do that. Hang around. We'd love to have you around. And look at Jesus. Is he fooled by any of this? No. Look at what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus answered them. He says, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now look at the verse 27. He addresses the problem. He sees through their matter of the heart, how evil and twisted their designs are on Jesus. And he offers the solution. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Here's the problem that we run into. And we all face this and we all do this. And I struggle with this on a daily basis. I try to make the present, I try to make the day in front of me more vital and more important than it actually is. And in doing that, because all I'm faced with is what's in front of me and what's just right there, I forget about what's eternal. I take good things and I forget about the best things. And this is the deception that we wrestle with. It's making the present more vital and real than the eternal. And this is where pride and idolatry come in. Because pride and idolatry does this. Pride and idolatry says, hey, I know best, and I'm going to make things, I'm going to make gods out of things that were never meant to be gods. So the Bible describes our problem as this. We have a worship problem. And our worship problem is this, is the rightly ordered worship is that we worship the creator of all things, and we recognize that we are his creation, that he is the most high and that he is sovereign. That is right and good worship, and we give him all the praise and glory that he's due because of that. But what happens is, most of the time, is that we flip that upside down. And so our world becomes about us, and we begin to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And so in that reality, what happens is I make myself more important than I am. And if you're going to make yourself more important than you, than you really should be, then what's the most important day? Well, it's today. Let's take care of me right now. Let's make things comfortable for me. Let's make things safe for me. Let's make sure that I get what's coming my way. And this is the battle that we fight every day. This is the battle that is before us to kill those impulses and to follow King Jesus. So what ends up happening is that we accept and we settle for good things and pass on the best, which is Jesus Christ himself. But this isn't the only place that Jesus addresses this idea of making the eternal priority over present. John chapter 3, verse 3. I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. This is when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What what is he saying to Nicodemus? Unless you forget about this world and you think about things that are eternal, you're never going to see what God is up to within his kingdom. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now think about this. It says, that's basically a summary verse to tell you this is something Jesus did at this point constantly. He's trying to prepare his 12 disciples for the reality that's coming his way. Hey, boys, listen up. Hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem, okay? Just want to remind you of this. We're going to go to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, some really bad things are going to happen to me. The elders and scribes are going to beat me, torture me, and then they're going to kill me. Third thing. Fourth thing is, but the good news is, on third day, I'll raise up. 
hey, guys, hey, just as a reminder, hey, one of these days we're going to go to Jerusalem. When we get there, bad things are going to happen to me. They're going to kill me. And then on the third day, I'll be raised up. Hey, guys, just in case you forgot about it, hey, just want to remind you, we're going to Jerusalem, okay? We're going to go to Jerusalem. Okay, when we get there, bad things are going to happen. They're going to, they're going to beat me, torture me. Third day, they'll kill me. And then on the fourth day, uh, uh, third day, I'll be raised up. It'll be, it'll be great. Hey, guys, just as a reminder, okay? Okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem, okay? I, I just want to prepare you. There's some bad things going to happen when we get there. Uh, they're going to beat me, all kinds of stuff. Uh, they'll kill me. And then on the third day, I'll be raised up. So apparently, the disciples got sick of hearing this. And this is my speculation. This is John all, not in the Bible, speculation on my part. I think they appointed Peter to have a conversation with him. They elected Peter to say, hey, Peter, sick of hearing this Jerusalem. We're going to get beat, killed, stuff. Go have a talk with the boy, straighten him out. So Peter is going to attempt to straighten Jesus out. Verse 22 says this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Do you know what it means to rebuke somebody? It's what used to happen to me a lot on a football field in high school. My coach would pull me aside and rebuke me because I was messing up. It's getting chewed out. It's yelling at somebody. That's what rebuking is. Okay, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine this? And this is what Peter has to say. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Listen, Jesus, hey, here's a wild idea. Okay, if those bad things are going to happen to you in Jerusalem, how about we not go to Jerusalem? That's crazy. And maybe we'll go, I don't know, somewhere else. Maybe we'll just avoid Jerusalem altogether. And then you won't get beat and killed and all that kind of good stuff. Listen, we're not going to let that stuff happen to you. So let's stop talking about this crazy nonsense. Let's get that out of your head. Me and the boys here, we're going to take care of you. It's going to be fine. Here's Jesus' response to all that. He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? Listen to this. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. You're being selfish in this moment. That's what he's telling Peter. And then the Bible says, then Jesus told his disciples, meaning he looked at the other eleven, that didn't have the guts to pull him aside and rebuke him like Peter. Hey, you, I want you all to hear this. He says this to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross, and then and only then are you ready to follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will do what? He will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? You have prioritized my safety and my comfort in the here and now over the eternal. And you're blowing it. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
And so Jesus is obviously, in our text, John chapter 6, he's prioritizing the eternal over the present. And he's saying that we need to set our mind on the things of God. And we need to accept what God has, which are best. But you know what? This crowd, they're sophisticated. They're hungry. They want breakfast. They're not done. That didn't stop them. said, hey, Jesus saw right through the ploy. You're not here because you saw signs. You're here because you want some more food. He's like, don't settle for the food that perishes, but work for the food that lasts to eternal life. And then they said to him in verse 28, so what must we do to be doing the works of God? You said work for the food that doesn't perish, but rather work for the food that lasts to eternal life. So what kind of work are we talking about here? What kind of work do we need to be doing is the question. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Here it is. You ready for it? Here's how you work for God. This is it. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. The question is, what kind of religious rituals am I going to need to do to get some more food out of you? And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. Here's the work of God. That from your heart, you believe and the one whom God sent, which is Jesus Christ. And so this is the basically the crowd's question. What must we do to let me earn the eternal? Jesus' reply is, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. The first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is this, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about what that really means? And have you ever really thought about why it's first in the list of beatitudes? It's this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Maybe we should try it this way, said another way. Blessed is the person that shows up a day late and a dollar short, spiritually speaking. Or maybe this will help. Blessed is the person who has no hope of standing before a holy God on their own merit. Why? Why? Because in that moment, our only hope is to throw all of our hope on the mercy of God. To say, God, if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. God, if you don't accomplish this, I'm I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to go where I need to be. And so why is this true? What could this possibly mean? Why does this person stand to inherit the kingdom of God in this minute? Let's start here. What does it mean to be poor? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor? You know, before I went to India, I really thought I knew what that meant. And I had no idea. I've, I've seen people who literally have nothing. I mean nothing. I've seen people who don't have a clothes. They don't, they don't have a thing in the world that they could call their own. I remember uh, at all of our trainings we do for our Christian brothers and sisters in India, we... Uh, we cater a meal. And the reason we cater a meal is because we want to show them that we love them. And although it's just one meal, it's a way to say, hey, we want to take care of you in this moment. And while we can't take care of you every day, that we want to show you we love you in this. And so we provide them. It's, it's basically a meal someone would receive at a wedding, which is something they probably won't attend. And so they get this, what to them is an incredible meal. What to me looks like it's a plate of food. And because I grew up in America and I can eat anytime I want and I'm not blown away by such things, but they are captivated by it. 
to say the least. And I remember a time when this woman walked up to me after me and thanked me for the meal that Ancrendia had provided. And she told me the story. She said, you know, yesterday um, I didn't eat. And uh, I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. And so I spent several hours this morning uh, communing and praying to my Heavenly Father. And I, I just asked him at one point, if there's a way possible, could you provide me with some food today somehow, some way? And then she came to this and got this meal. And I, I remember standing there thinking, I ate breakfast this morning. Um, and before lunch, I ate a snack. And uh, then I ate lunch. And this afternoon, I'll have another snack, and then tonight, I'll eat dinner, and then I'll probably eat something after that, and then the next day, I'll get up, and I'll have breakfast again, and so on, and so forth, and here's this woman standing before me, thanking me for a meal that she supposed that I provided when God had really done it. That's poor. That's poor. It's having nothing. And it's standing before a holy God empty-handed and saying, God, if you don't do this, I, it, it's, it's not going to happen. If you don't save me, it's not going to happen. If you don't accomplish these things, it's not going to happen. And so when Jesus says to them, hey, you want to know what the work of God is? Here's the work of God, that you believe in him who God sent, which happened to be, he's talking about himself, he's referring to himself. And so I want to ask you this question, how much is belief a matter of the heart? It's easy to come to church and say, I believe, but it is a different thing altogether to live your life in light of the eternal and believe that that is exactly what God has called us to do, to totally, completely rely upon what he has provided. The third idea that I get out of this text is that they tie their belief to Jesus doing miraculous tricks. So the text goes on to say in verse 30, so they said to him, they're not done yet. This is this sophisticated crowd. And, hey, we're about to get religious here. We're going to bring the Bible into this. Let's bring the Bible into it and spiritually manipulate someone. Here's what they're going to do. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? In other words, you want us to believe in you? Great. What, what sign are you going to do? Hey, I got an idea. How about you make some more food? And that's kind of where they go. So what work do you perform? Here's an idea. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. In other words, hey, they're about to quote scripture. Okay, hey, Jesus, this is a, this is a biblical idea right here. You feed us. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, that sounds good to us, sir. Give us this bread always. Yeah, make us a loaf. Let's cook it up. Let's get going. So this is an attempt, obviously, to manipulate Jesus into giving them more food. And here's a group of people that want to spiritually manipulate Jesus. By the way, that's a great idea. Yeah, try that one, okay? Go home and try to spiritually manipulate God into giving you what you want. That'll, that'll turn out well for you. So they wish to manipulate him even after he's already outed them, after he's identified the wickedness and the matter of their heart, and he's saying, basically saying to them, listen, you're here for the stuff, you're not here for the king. 
You don't love the king of kings. You love the king's stuff. That, is that not our problem? Hey, listen. Before we call these people out for fools and we call them out for what's going on here, I, I'm just saying to you, listen, I, I'm guilty of this too. There, there are times that I'd rather have the king's stuff than I'd rather have the king. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling the crowd out for. He's saying, listen, I'm trying to diagnose your heart in this moment. I'm trying to point you to the way that would lead you to more than you could ever imagine. You're here for a meal, and I'm talking about eternity. And you're missing the point. And they're saying to him, yeah, yeah, you know, but hey, here's a little scripture that God used to feed people in the, in the wilderness. And their ploy goes something like this. If you could just supply us with that good heavenly bread, then, and then we'll believe in you. Yeah, belief will come after the bread. Bread first, belief later. And so that's basically what they're saying. The implied threat is this. If you don't do what we ask, you will not have our belief nor our loyalty. The reaction to this account is to declare this ungrateful, scheming crowd as fools. And yet, how often do we try the same with God? You see, threats come from a place of fear. Fear does irrational things to our minds and thus causes us to believe some silly things. It causes us to believe that we know what is best and, second, what we need most. And the fear-based solution has an interesting coincidence It's always, always, always self-serving. You ever notice that? When I'm afraid and I come up with a solution on my own, it's amazing how it always serves me. Fears-based decisions are this. They're driven by emotion. They're usually knee-jerk reactions. It's not been thought through. It has not been prayed through. It has not been bathed in Scripture. It finds its motivation in the preservation of self and what works best for me and mine in that particular given moment, meaning right here, right now, in the present. And eternity isn't even close to being in mind. The spiritual decision, on the other hand, is this. It's based in the truth of God's Word. It is prayed over. It lines up with the principles, directives, and commands taught in Scripture. It finds its motivation in what is best for King Jesus and his kingdom and not necessarily my best interest. Does that make sense? And so this is what Jesus is pointing them to in this moment. And it comes down to this, and it concludes with this. Jesus' response is beautiful news if you have your mind set on the eternal. What he's about to say in this moment, it's beautiful. If you have your mind set on the present world, it's bitterly disappointing. Let's see what he has to say in verse 35. Jesus says to them, having clearly seen through everything that they have going, you're looking for a meal, but I happen to be the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, your life will line up with that. Read it again. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Praise God for that. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who has sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Man, that is beautiful stuff. You believe what Jesus says in verse 35? That I'm the bread of life. You come to me, you'll never hunger. You come to me, you will never thirst. You will never be left wanting. You will never go another day in your life wondering what is better than this. You can name whatever you want in this life. Money, sex, power, fame, family, love, and I promise you Jesus is better. He is better than those things. One of my uh, favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. If you haven't read it, I would recommend that you do so. There's a, early on in the book, uh, there's this passage. I love this passage. It speaks to this reality. He says this, Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. In other words, what he's saying for it is that what you crave in life, what you desire in life, the things that you chase after that are not Jesus, those things, those desires, they're not too strong, they're too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea, we are far, far, far too easily pleased. So what is Jesus saying in this moment? He's saying you will never be in want. You come to me, I'm the bread of life, you will never be in want. What I promise, I deliver on, including eternal life. And what is mine, I never lose. I will not drop the ball. If you are the chosen, the elect, and God gives you to me, I will not lose you. And you will never be disappointed in me. But here's the problem. People don't believe that to be true. And we'd never admit that. We would all agree to that. Wouldn't we? Uh objectively in this moment if we were asked, but people don't believe this to be true. And how do we know that people don't believe this to be true? Because they don't live that way. Because belief is followed by action. Belief is followed up by, I set my mind on the kingdom of God. I set my mind on the eternal. I set my mind on what King Jesus has for me, and I go after that. And what I find in following Jesus in that way is I deny myself so that I might take up my cross, so I might follow after him every day of my life. I will never be disappointed in that. It does not mean that I won't find tragedy. It doesn't mean that I won't go through pain or trial or tribulation. It means I will be satisfied completely of what Jesus offers me in that moment. Notice the reaction of the crowd in verse 41 and 42. The Jews grumbled about him. And I guess we're getting breakfast out of this deal. But the, the point they come to. They grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. That wasn't the bread they came looking for. They were looking for a steaming, nice loaf of bread. Slice that up, throw a little butter on it. We'd all be good. We'd make a breakfast out of that. But that's not what they got. They get instead of this guy standing in front of them telling them, I'm the bread of life. Oh, you're the bread of life. Listen, if you don't have your mind set on the eternal, what Jesus just said and what Jesus just promised, it would be extremely disappointing to you. It was extremely disappointing to them. And look at verse 42. This is amazing to me. 
And they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? Isn't this the guy from Nazareth? We know his dad. We know his mom. We know him. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Now think about this for a minute. Here's a group of people who not only got in a boat in the thousands and crossed the sea to chase a guy down because they believed he was their meal ticket. Hey, he made a meal one time. He can do it again. Let's get this guy. We'll take him by force. We'll make him king. He'll make us a meal every day of our lives. It will be great. And now they've come to the point where they say, who does this clown think he is? Some dude from Nazareth. We know his parents. I mean, he thinks he's all that. Is Is that not what sin does to us? It leads us to a point, and when it disappoints, we blame everyone else and everything else. And yet, that's the place we find ourselves. That's who we are in our base nature. Is that we're people who want the best for us right here, right now. If I'm not comfortable and I'm not safe, then I'm saying to God in some ways, and I'm saying to King Jesus in some ways, hey, if you don't give me what I want, I don't know that you'll have my loyalty or my belief. And I'm saying to you, listen, God will see right through that. You know what that's called? It's sin. Because what you're saying in that moment to God is, I know better. Hey, God, here you are and here I am. And I know better than you. And I know what I need. And if you don't make me comfortable, I'm not going to believe in you. And listen to me, God is not going to play to your game. God won't have that. I mean, God's not like he has some identity crisis, like he's sitting around God. gosh, I hope people like me. That's not happening. So listen to me. God has an agenda. He has a will. He has his way. And you either get in line with it, and it will lead you to eternal and beautiful things, or you go your own way, which will lead to destruction. So I'll ask you a question again that I asked at the beginning of this. What will you do today to give the present a picture of the future? What are you going to do today in the way that you believe and that you follow King Jesus in such a way that gives people a picture of the future? And how will the kingdom that both is and is to come be displayed in your life? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for sovereign grace. I thank you for their leadership. I thank you for this beautiful church for the heart it has, for the ministry it has, for the things that it is already doing. And Lord, I pray for the individual believers in this moment. And I pray that they would take inventory of their own lives and that they would look at their own heart and they would honestly and objectively before you say, am I trying to make life about me or am I trying to make it about following you? And if it's not about following you, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to repentance through your mercy and your grace, and that you would show them who you really are. And Lord, I pray that you would lay your hand upon this place. I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that uh, their ministry would just, it would just explode in Ada, and that it would just be, that your kingdom would be known here because of this place. And I just praise you for this place, and I thank you for all this. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.